Section twenty eight of Reviews by Oscar Wilde. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Corey Samuel. Reviews by Oscar Wilde. Edited by Robert Ross. Section twenty eight. Ben Johnson. Pall Mall Gazette, September twentieth, eighteen eighty six. In selecting Mr. John Addington Simmons to write the life of Ben Jonson for his series of English worthies, Mr. Lang no doubt exercised a wise judgment. Mr. Simmons, like the author of Volpone, is a scholar and a man of letters. His book on Shakespeare's predecessors showed a marvellous knowledge of the Elizabethan period, and he is a recognised authority on the Italian Renaissance. The last is not the least of his qualifications. Without a full appreciation of the meaning of the humanistic movement, it is impossible to understand the great struggle between the classical form and the romantic spirit which is the chief critical characteristic of the golden age of the English drama, an age when Shakespeare found his chief adversary, not among his contemporaries, but in Seneca, and when Johnson armed himself with Aristotle to win the suffrages of a London audience. Mr. Simmons' book, consequently, will be opened with interest. It does not, of course, contain much that is new about Johnson's life. But the facts of Johnson's life are already well known, and in books of this kind what is true is of more importance than what is new, appreciation more valuable than discovery. Scotchmen, however, will no doubt be interested to find that Mr. Simmons has succeeded in identifying Johnson's crest with that of the Johnstons of Annandale, and the story of the way the literary titan escaped from hanging by proving that he could read, is graphically told. On the whole, we have a vivid picture of the man as he lived. Where picturesqueness is required, Mr. Simmons is always good. The usual comparison with Dr. Johnson is, of course, brought out. Few of rare Ben's biographers spare us that, and the point is possibly a natural one to make. But when Mr. Simmons calls upon us to notice that both men made a journey to Scotland, and that each found in a Scotchman his biographer, the parallel loses all value. There is an M in Monmouth, and an M in Macedon, and Drummond of Hawthornden, and Boswell of Auchinleck, were both born the other side of the Tweed, but from such analogies nothing is to be learned. There is no surer way of destroying a similarity than to strain it. As for Mr. Simmons' estimate of Johnson's genius, it is in many points quite excellent. He ranks him with the giants, rather than with the gods, with those who compel our admiration by their untiring energy and huge strength of intellectual muscle, not with those who share the divine gifts of creative imagination and inevitable instinct. Here he is right. Pelion, more than Parnassus, was Johnson's home. His art has too much effort about it, too much definite intention. His style lacks the charm of chance. Mr. Simmons is right also in the stress he lays on the extraordinary combination in Johnson's work of the most concentrated realism with encyclopedic erudition. In Johnson's comedies, London slang and learned scholarship go hand in hand. Literature was as living a thing to him as life itself. He used his classical lore not merely to give form to his verse, but to give flesh and blood to the persons of his plays. He could build up a breathing creature out of quotations. 
he made the poets of Greece and Rome terribly modern, and introduced them to the oddest company. His very culture is an element in his coarseness. There are moments when one is tempted to liken him to a beast that has fed off books. We cannot, however, agree with Mr. Simmons, when he says that Johnson rarely touched more than the outside of character, that his men and women are the incarnations of abstract properties rather than living human beings, that they are in fact mere masqueraders and mechanical puppets. Eloquence is a beautiful thing, but rhetoric ruins many a critic, and Mr. Simmons is essentially rhetorical. When, for instance, he tells us that Johnson made masks, while Decker and Hayward created souls, we feel that he is asking us to accept a crude judgment for the sake of a smart antithesis. It is, of course, true that we do not find in Johnson the same growth of character that we find in Shakespeare, and we may admit that most of the characters in Johnson's plays are, so to speak, ready-made. But a ready-made character is not necessarily either mechanical or wooden, two epithets Mr. Simmons uses constantly in his criticism. We cannot tell, and Shakespeare himself does not tell us, why Iago is evil, why Regan and Goneril have hard hearts, or why Sir Andrew Aguecheek is a fool. It is sufficient that they are what they are, and that nature gives warrant for their existence. If a character in a play is lifelike, if we recognize it as true to nature, we have no right to insist on the author explaining its genesis to us. We must accept it as it is, and in the hands of a good dramatist, mere presentation can take the place of analysis, and indeed is often a more dramatic method because a more direct one. And Johnson's characters are true to nature. They are in no sense abstractions, they are types. Captain Bobadil and Captain Tucker, Sir John Dore and Sir Amorous Lafoul, Volpon and Mosca, Subtle and Sir Epicure Mammon, Mrs. Purecraft and the Rabbi Busy, are all creatures of flesh and blood, none the less lifelike because they are labelled. In this point, Mr. Simmons seems to us unjust towards Johnson. We think, also, that a special chapter might have been devoted to Johnson as a literary critic. The creative activity of the English Renaissance is so great that its achievements in the sphere of criticism are often overlooked by the student. Then, for the first time, was language treated as an art. The laws of expression and composition were investigated and formularized. The importance of words was recognized. Romanticism, realism and classicism fought their first battles. The dramatists are full of literary and art criticisms, and amused the public with slashing articles on one another in the form of plays. Mr. Simmons, of course, deals with Johnson in his capacity as a critic, and always with just appreciation, but the whole subject is one that deserves fuller and more special treatment. Some small inaccuracies, too, should be corrected in the second edition. Dryden, for instance, was not Johnson's successor on the laureate's throne, as Mr. Simmons eloquently puts it, for Sir William Davenant came between them, and when one remembers the predominance of rhyme in Shakespeare's early plays, it is too much to say that, after the production of the first part of Tamburlaine, blank verse became the regular dramatic metre of the public stage. Shakespeare did not accept blank verse at once as a gift from Marlowe's hand, but himself arrived at it after a long course of experiments in rhyme. Indeed, some of Mr. Simmons' remarks on Marlowe are very curious. 
to say of his Edward II, for instance, that it is not at all inferior to the work of Shakespeare's younger age, is very niggardly and inadequate praise, and comes strangely from one who has elsewhere written with such appreciation of Marlowe's great genius, while to call Marlowe Johnson's master is to make for him an impossible claim. In comedy Marlowe has nothing whatever to teach Johnson. In tragedy Johnson sought for the classical, not the romantic form. As for Mr. Simmons' style, it is, as usual, very fluent, very picturesque, and very full of colour. Here and there, however, it is really irritating. Such a sentence as, The tavern had the defects of its quality, is an awkward gallicism, and when Mr. Simmons, after genially comparing Johnson's blank verse to the front of Whitehall, a comparison, by the way, that would have enraged the poet beyond measure, proceeds to play a fantastic aria on the same string, and tells us that Massinger reminds us of the intricacies of San Savino, Shakespeare of Gothic Isles or Heaven's Cathedral, Ford of glittering Corinthian colonnades, Webster of vaulted crypts, Marlowe of masoned clouds, and Marston, in his better moments, of the fragmentary vigour of a Roman ruin, one begins to regret that anyone ever thought of the unity of the arts. Similes such as these obscure, they do not illumine. To say that Ford is like a glittering Corinthian colonnade adds nothing to our knowledge of either Ford or Greek architecture. Mr. Simmons has written some charming poetry, but his prose, unfortunately, is always poetical prose, never the prose of a poet. Still, the volume is worth reading, although decidedly Mr. Simmons, to use one of his own phrases, has the defects of his quality. English Worthies Edited by Andrew Lang Ben Johnson By John Addington Simmons Longman's Green Company End of section 28 Ben Johnson